following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was to be born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the home, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So they got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. He stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, 
weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, where those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, he will be called a Nazarene. The wise men, the three magi or kings from the east, they saw the star in the east. They were astrologers. They studied the skies for times and seasons. We don't know how many there were. We we suspect there were three simply because there were three kinds of gifts identified, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all extremely valuable. And no doubt it was with these gifts that they were able to survive in Egypt. God always pays for what he orders. They come and find Joseph and Mary and the baby in a house. They have moved from the stable. It was some time in the first, maybe, year of life for Jesus. He was probably no longer an infant. They were the first to come and bow in worship before Jesus. They bowed in worship before any of the Jews bowed in worship. These were Gentiles. These were Persians. They were pagans. But they saw the star in the east, and they brought gifts. As I think about this wonderful story of the Magi, I wish I could bring to Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh and kneel before him and see him in the flesh. But he's no longer a baby. He's now he's now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I finally recognized that I really only had one gift to bring to Jesus. And the gift I bring to Jesus is my past, my present, and my future. And I have given him all that I am. I have given him body, soul, and spirit. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I make no claim on any monies that I have. I make no claim on any friendships I have. I make no claim to any family, my daughters and their husbands and the eight grandchildren. I make no claim on them. For I have given all of them to Jesus. I make no claim on my time or my talent for I have given them to Jesus. I do not walk under condemnation from the past, even though I have many times sinned against the Lord and many times been cold of heart. He has forgiven me. The most wonderful gift that Jesus 
has given to me is that my past sins have been forgiven, that he has come and made me righteous. And so I don't live under the condemnation of past sins. For any person who sins against the Lord, when they humble their heart and they confess their sin, and they turn from it and determine never again to walk in that manner, their sin is forgiven. And they're cleansed and purified from all unrighteousness. So I have given to Jesus all of my sin, all of my ways, I have not withheld from him any part of my heart. I have welcomed him to come and hollow me out and make an abode for himself in my soul. Now, today's broadcast is entitled A Secret Gift. It is a gift we usually do not consider, and it is a secret gift that we have been given by our Father. It is a most precious gift. Granted, it is a gift that that some may not want. It is an incredible gift. Let me share the gift with you that Jesus brings now today. Oh, yes, the forgiveness of sin, that is the crowning gift of all gifts. When Jesus died on Calvary for our sin, that was the gift of all gifts. No gift can begin to compare with Jesus dying on the cross. But then he gave us another gift. Let me read it for you. It's found in the book of Genesis. You remember when the fall took place. When these two people, our mother and our father, for we are the children of Adam and Eve. They are our parents. When our parents stood there at that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they took the fruit, and they ate of it, suddenly they lost what God had given them, a clothing, an interface with God himself. Suddenly they knew they were bare naked and they were ashamed. Sin always strips us of our dignity. It always strips us of our hope. Sin always destroys. They stood there ashamed, and then they went and hid from God. Let's be very clear today. God has not hidden himself from us. We have hidden ourselves from him. It is God's heart that he should be intimate with us. But he will not be intimate with us so long as we continue to walk in the wickedness of this world and our heart. That has to be changed. And so in the midst of this horrible situation, where they are being forced to leave their home, they are losing their provision. They're losing their jobs. 
They're being fired. They have nothing left. And in that desperate, desperate moment, as Eve stands before God, no doubt weeping, a broken heart because she sees what she has done just a little bit, as they have transferred their allegiance from God, the Creator God, from Jesus. He was the Creator God. They've transferred their allegiance from the God of heaven, their Creator, their their love. They have become independent and they have transferred their love to the devil. And they are now being dispossessed of paradise. Now, I want to tell you today, the human race has never overcome the loss of paradise. It is deep within our DNA. There is in every man and every woman a sense of inadequacy. No, some cover it with bravo and some cover it with anger. Some cover it with being a victim. Some cover it with a barrage of accusations against God. But all of us who are Adam's sons and daughters were born with a sense of total inadequacy in our heart. I remember when I was just in high school, I was a, I was a farm boy. I was a country boy. And my parents, my freshman year in high school, sent me off to a Christian boarding school, Mount Vernon Academy, Mount Vernon, Ohio. And there were many wealthy and sophisticated young men and women going to that school, and they, they dressed in the latest trends of the day. And I came to Mount Vernon Academy wearing bib overhauls. And I had told my mother and my father, I don't want to go to school with bib overhauls. Ray, there's nothing wrong with bib overhauls. Now people wear them as a, a fashion statement. So they very kindly purchased three pairs of green jeans, green work pants. And on that campus, I was quickly nicknamed Green Jeans. It was a source of constant embarrassment. I was put to work in the kitchen. We were to work half a day and go to school half a day to earn our way. I made all of 25 cents an hour. And my first job was to scrub pots and pans. Well, you can imagine how I felt scrubbing pots and pans with these beautiful girls around. I was a boy and and no women in the family except mom. So I didn't know how to talk to girls. I'd never been around girls before. And I was so painfully shy. And they took great advantage and great delight in teasing me. And I endured. I was finally able to move out of washing pots and pans, and and I moved into a commercial bakery and learned how to bake all kinds of good things like rolls and and bread and desserts of all kinds. But I recognized in that setting, even then, the utter displacement and shame of my life. And I made a vow then that I would no longer remain a farm boy, a country boy. No, not losing my love for farming. I would be a farmer today if Jesus would allow me to be. 
but I wanted to learn how to walk and dress and talk in a way that would allow me to be a pastor. When I went to that academy, I killed the English. I didn't know how to use it very well. I'd grown up in a family where ain't was acceptable. Mixing up pronouns. I felt to the very depths of my soul my displacement from the Garden of Eden. I walked day after day in constant shame, trying to figure out how to be acceptable. Many years later, I was married and had children and I still thought of myself as an ugly farm boy, country boy. It didn't matter that I now dressed in fine suits and fine shoes. In my mind, I was still a country farm boy, a hick. These feelings, these deep DNA changes that were made in our life when our mom and father, our mom and dad, when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and became farmers, earning their food by the sweat of their brow, that persists as servants of the devil, Shame and guilt. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that sense of utter unworthiness. Conviction is the word used in the scripture for which the Holy Spirit was going to come. He was going to come and convict the world of guilt. The word convict simply means to be absolutely convinced of your unworthiness. You cannot come to Jesus without that sense of guilt and unworthiness. Because you see, what Jesus is about is restoring us to himself, to a place of innocence and purity and godliness. There has to be a a death to desiring acceptance from Satan and from the world, from the flesh and from the devil. I spoke to you of a secret gift. I want to read this to you in Genesis, the third chapter, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, the church, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Jesus will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. You will hurt him, Satan, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to kill you, Satan. Now, if you think that you can casually walk through the world, you have missed the secret gift of God. It is a gift that is of utmost value and importance. It is the first gift given to us after we are removed, after we are fired, after we are kicked out of our garden paradise. And I say ours because it is written in our hearts and our souls that we have lost paradise. He said, I will put enmity. That is, I will put hatred. I will put anger between you and the woman. In other words, the church is going to hate the works of darkness. 
The church is going to have anger toward the works of darkness. That is the gift that was given to us, the first gift after we are dispossessed of the paradise of God. This is what was given to us. Now, this gift is of great value to us. And one of the issues that we are facing today, in fact, I would call it the major issue that we are facing today in the church, is that we have this foolish notion that Jesus is some symbol of peace, that Jesus is this sentimental symbol of love and goodwill. And it's simply not true. This is not who Jesus is. In Luke, the second chapter, verse 14, the company of angels is singing, and they sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Well, who who are the men upon whom his favor rests? They are men and women who will love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take it a step further. They're the men and women who will have anger and hatred in their heart towards sin, darkness. Well, I'm not saying hatred and anger toward people who sin. I'm saying anger and hatred toward all sin that is brought by the power of darkness. It is our enemy. He is our enemy. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus said. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus came to bring a sword and put that sword in our hands. He says, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One of the great tools that we must use in the process of losing our lives to this world and its vanity is an understanding of how to use hatred and anger. They were the gifts given to us to empower us to deal with darkness, with the devil. I know to be politically correct, we have to be tolerant. May I share something with you? I am a totally intolerant person. I will not tolerate sin in my life. And I will confront sin as directed by the Holy Spirit in any person who is around or about me. I just read this pastor who's considered one of the greatest pastors in America, T.D. Jakes. He drives his hot sports car and wears the diamond in his ear. And now he's saying, we need to be very accepting of homosexuals in the church. And we need to encourage homosexuals to go to churches who embrace them and approve of their lifestyle. I saw that and anger rose up in my heart. How dare a pastor so speak evil against the work of righteousness that Jesus is in the process of doing in the hearts of his people 
what a prophet of, of dismay to Jesus' heart. I could name many others who, who likewise have become very politically correct and very tolerant of sin and participate fully in the sin. They have not accepted the secret gift that Jesus bestowed upon them in his dealings with Satan immediately after the fall of our parents. That secret gift is burning hatred towards sin. Again, not toward the sinner, but toward the sin. We are called to separate ourselves to not love the sin. And some of you, you love the sin. You love the sin. And you call yourself a Christian. Listen to this passage from James, the first chapter. Let me begin to read verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Why does he need to persevere under trial? Because he does not accept the culture. He he is against the culture of the world. When I was a a young seminarian, I had to read Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. And I was taught in seminary that we should not be intolerant of our culture, but we should do all that we could in our power to redeem our culture. No, I want to tell you, That's the politically correct philosophy of the modern church, and it is a lie. I am not going to agree with the Millie Cyrus twerking or the Kardashians and their wickedness. I'm not going to watch and approve of Star Wars, such utter darkness, and yet the theaters are being filled with Christians who are approving of this utter wickedness. There is a throwing off of the sacred gift given to rescue us from the powers of darkness, hatred for evil, hatred for darkness. As the vile wickedness is spewing out over America, countless Christians are sitting like King Saul at the table of the devil, of a witch feasting on her meal, not knowing that that feasting on the meal will lead them to suicide, to utter destruction. Any person who fills their heart with the wickedness of this world and has no use for the gift of Jesus to them of hatred and anger toward the works of darkness They're in the process of committing suicide, for they will die if they do not turn their hearts and accept the gift of turning against the things of darkness. I'll be the first to admit, I thought my father was rather foolish when he was in opposition to the professional football and baseball and basketball and all the professional sports and all the entertainment of the world, the music of the world. And then along came so-called Christians. I won't name them, but they did a crossover and they blended the music of the world with the music of Jesus. Jesus. 
I'll name one, Pat Boone. He was of my age, and he was one of those first people to cross over and begin to blend light and darkness. And it ended up being darkness. We could name many others. But there came a a comfort in darkness so that what is called Christian music today would have been condemned years ago as dance hall worldly music. Hip-hop and many other forms of music. I have pastors who are friends of mine who say, Ray, we have to use whatever is in the culture in order to communicate to make the gospel relevant. Wrong. My job is not to make the gospel of Jesus Christ relevant to you. My job is to make you relevant to Jesus Christ. He is the finite, the infinite one. We are the we are the finite ones. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. James 1, verse 16. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. If we do not use the gift of Jesus Christ, the secret gift of anger, of enmity, hatred, if we do not use that gift towards sin, we will find it acceptable. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The culture changes like shifting shadows. Today it's hip-hop. Before it was rock and roll. Before it was something else. The culture is always shifting like shadows. But it is the God of heaven who gives every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change. So Jesus does not adjust himself to the culture of the world, and if the church adjusts itself to the culture of the world, it has lost its power and its salty bite. And salt that is lost its bite, is of no use but to be thrown out and trampled underground. Most American churches have totally lost their bite. The salt is no longer salty. Because they have given up all opposition, all hatred, all enmity against darkness. Instead, they welcome the darkness in, hoping that those who come to them in their darkness will somehow see something and change. How can they when the very people who are leading the churches, who are the leaders, the ministers, the deacons, they too love the darkness? The secret gift of God. The secret gift of God is hatred towards sin. When I began to understand this, I took this as a promise. You remember we spoke out of Second Peter about you participate in the divine nature through the great and precious promises of God. Let me read it for you specifically. This is Second Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. It does not say through our knowledge of the culture. 
who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So how do we deal with evil desires? We take a promise of God and we stand on it, and we ask him to do what he promised to do. And so I've taken this passage of this secret promise, and I've said, Oh God, will you put hatred in my heart toward my pride? Will you put hatred in in my heart against the ambition of my soul to be somebody in this world? Will you, by your grace, give me anger and hatred toward my self-defensiveness? Will you cause the sin of my life to be utterly putrid, that I would not love any longer anything of darkness? I would hate it. When the Lord told me to stop watching television, I confess to you I loved the television. I spent many hours a day watching it. The Lord said, stop, turn it off. And I took it to the trash, and I was done. I'll never have a television in my home again. I asked God, would you put hatred in my heart toward television? Would you put hatred toward everything unclean? Would you put enmity, would you put anger in my heart toward the works of the devil that would come into my heart and into my life? The lust for things, the lust for for comfort, the lust for acceptance. Would you put hatred in my heart, Jesus, toward these things? This is the time when we give gifts. The greatest gift God gave us was dying on Calvary's tree. The second greatest gift God gave to us was hatred and enmity toward darkness. And so I stand on this promise that the bitter root that rises up that wants to accuse God and other people God, give me hatred toward that bitter root. Cut it out of my life. Cut it out of my heart. I don't want it. It's wrong. It's sin. I guess today I'm coming to ask you if you would receive the gift of the promise of God that he would put hatred in anger, enmity in your heart toward all sin. Some of you need to stop sitting in the churches where you're being taught a different gospel. Some of you need to leave the church where you're being taught positional righteousness. Some of you need to leave that church that is filled with the entertainment of the world where men are lifted up and not Jesus. You need to leave that place. You need to have hatred in your heart toward the sin that is going on in that place. You need to flee to a refuge of Jesus and let him direct you for where you should be. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel, Woodbridge, Virginia. I invite you to come and visit us. I was so blessed on Sunday. A dear woman stood up during our sharing time and began to confess how she had been caught, how she had caught herself herself 
lying. And with tears she confessed before the congregation and expressed her utter disgust with her actions. We had a time of prayer for her, a time of of healing. There's no condemnation in Christ, but there has to be repentance and turning away. And it was so sweet to see her tears and her hatred for her sin and her rejoicing in Jesus Christ. It was so wonderful to, to see young men and women talking about their love for Jesus, to sing songs of glory, to praise and worship to our Lord. It was wonderful to see the altar filled with gifts that we could share with one another. I'd like to welcome you to come and visit and experience for yourself a place where there's no culture of entertainment. Just a very simple, clean, honest fellowship in Jesus Christ and the preaching of the Word. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. The address is 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. You're also welcome to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Let's pray. Lord, I stand today. Jesus, I stand today on your promise for your people that you would put enmity and hatred towards sin in our hearts, that we would not come in agreement with the consumer culture of our age, the vileness of this culture, the wickedness on every hand, that, Lord, we would turn our backs on it and we would enter into the gift that you have given us of no longer being tolerant toward the darkness. But you would cause cause us to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, and we would be filled with your love and mercy and compassion. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for your people today. The gift, the gift, the secret gift of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Again, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of God.